Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Uh, and welcome to our first official episode of 2018. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to and contributing voicemails to our Best Movies of 2017 episode, which aired last week. You can go to deepfocusradio.com to hear that conversation uh, between me, um, Arnold Gorlick, and Dan Heaton, as well as over a dozen of you, listeners, friends, guests about your favorite movies of last year. On the first segment of today's show, I'll be joined by one of the contributors of uh, those voicemails that I referenced on last week's show, New Haven film critic and lecturer Steve Fortes, to talk about the entire history of African-American cinema. Well, maybe the whole history uh, is not quite something we can tackle in half an hour, but we will do our best. In the early 1990s, Steve taught two seminars at Yale University about the history of African-American film and television. On today's show, we'll talk about Uh, We'll talk with Steve about the films that he covered in those two seminars, what he saw as some of the prevailing themes and trends in the first century of African-American film, and about which movies and filmmakers he would include today if he were teaching the same course in 2018. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of The Post, Steven Spielberg's new movie about the 1971 debate within the editorial ranks of The Washington Post, about whether or not to publish Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, classified documents that revealed decades of executive branch deceit and cynicism that prolonged America's disastrous involvement in Vietnam. We'll talk about how this movie resonates in 2018 as a celebration of the free press and as an indictment of the hypermasculine industries of newspapers and politics in the early 1970s. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show Steve Fortes. Steve was last on episode 100 of this program for a conversation about Steven Spielberg's 1997 movie, Amistad. Steve, thanks for coming back. It's a pleasure to have you back in the studio. Thanks. Nice to be back. Okay, so how to start with an episode about the history of African-American cinema? Well, you know, actually, um, so I want to hear about these courses, uh, about uh, the general subjects, about the movies you covered, about any memorable experiences. But first, I'm going to start with maybe a little bit of a curveball and see <laughs> see what comes to mind. And that's uh, one of the books that you uh, assigned in one of these seminars from the early 90s uh, is A History of African-American Cinema by, help me with the name again, Donald Bogle. Donald Bogle. Uh, and it's called Tom's, Coons, Mammy's. Uh, and mulattoes and bucks, mulattoes and bucks, and documents the kind of five stereotypical stock characters that he sees represented throughout the history of African American cinema. But the uh, the what I wanted to start out asking about is that in his introduction, he says that his uh, um, kind of revelatory moment in realizing as a young boy in the 1950s that black people could be represented on screen with some kind of uh, um, truth to life, some kind of uh, honesty of depiction of the kind of complexity of of African Americans as people, as opposed to just these stereotypes, was watching Carmen Jones. Um, and I wonder if there was a movie for you growing up. Uh, you know, as a as a cinema buff, I imagine if there's a particular film that you remember sticking out at you most in terms of uh, breaking away from Hollywood stereotypical depictions of African Americans on screen. And showing you that you know there is a way, a different way that um, that black people can be represented in the movies. Yes, actually, there was one that I actually taught in the course, which is called "Intruder in the Dust," and actually that was from 1949. But obviously, I saw it years later. Um, but the uh, the main character in there, Juan Hernandez, uh, is an older black man who's living in a small southern town, who gets accused of murdering someone, and. There are the, the people want to, you know, to lynch him and everything, but, the, you know, there are a couple of, you know, the good people in the town, you know, sort of the Atticus Finch types in the town that kind of want to help him. Um, and, and they're sort of, um, you know, being sort of liberal. And he's, he's not having it with them. You know, he's, he's like, you know, you know, don't do it like, oh, we're going we're gonna to help you because, you know, you don't have anybody else who's going to help you. You know, um, I need a lawyer. I have the money to hire a lawyer. Here's the money. Go do your job. And he doesn't give them a lot of help during the course of the thing. He says, well, that's your job. You go figure out what to do. And he remains that way through, through the entire movie. And it's, there's a smaller boy that's in the movie who, who actually, you know, comes to realize, you know, that, you know, this man has his pride and he's not going to, uh, you know, lower himself or debase himself or, you know, or, you know, come to anybody with his hat in his hand. And, and I find that, 
really refreshing and everything. So that's one of my favorite movies and everything. And I've taught that in, in both the courses that I that I did. So that's Intruder in the Sky. Intruder that's, in the Dust. Intruder in the Dust. I'm sorry, Intruder in the Dust. And that's from the late 1940s. Yes. Um, well, an, an excellent first recommendation on a show that we'll have many, I'm sure. Uh, thank you for, for hitting that curveball out of the park. Sure. Um, but uh, so uh, I think that's a good segue into uh, these courses. T- tell me you know, broadly, uh, me and the listeners, about uh, what, what were the courses you taught uh, in the early 1990s? What were they called? What were their kind of general parameters? What did you cover in them? Okay. Well, actually, I started out um, how I became interested in all this. I mean, I've always been interested in movies. Um, but when I was at uh, UConn, I was taking a film course. And in the second half of the film course, we were doing American films. And we had a book that was called Rise of the American Cinema. And it had one line. And there was an independent black filmmaker named Oscar Micheaux, who did films from like the 20s up until the 50s. And that was it. That was the only line. I'm like, well, isn't there anything else? So I started searching. I started going to libraries and, you know, doing all kinds of research. And I found out more about him and about the, the race films that, uh, that, you know, were going on. And then I started collecting books over the years, which I'm still doing. <laughs> now, do you remember in the same way that there was a, a part of the, uh, um, the relationship between the, that main character in Intruder in the Dust and the young boy who looks up to him that really stuck out to you? Is there something about... Uh, Oscar Micheaux that you remember when you first began learning about him, this uh, iconic independent African-American filmmaker uh, from the first half of the 20th century, that really, what, what is it about his story that, that most piqued your interest? Uh, mainly that he, he was uh, very independent. He, basically, he was sort of like a barnstormer, I guess I can use that particular term. Um, he would get ideas for films, and he would go to different um, black communities throughout the country, and you'd say, look, I'm, I, you know, I want to be able to do this film. Um, there are a number of, um, of African-American um, um, theater companies that I can choose people from. Um, and I, I need to do this, you know, and, I'm, and I need to get money for this. And he would, you know, garner money that way. And then he would go into different cities and uh, make deals with the different uh, theaters. You know, you, know, I, you know, I have this film that I can show and, you know, it's, a, it's, an, it's an all-Negro production. And uh, if you have a particular, you know, time of the day, usually it was like in an evening, sometimes it was like Saturday matinees that they would be able to do these. And that's how he got his movies, you know, made. Um, you know, talking about being an independent filmmaker and, you know, doing low-budget films, um, you know, a lot of times he had next to no money. And he would do scenes uh, on the spur of the moment. They'd be traveling someplace and he goes, oh, that looks like a good location. Let's stop here and we'll do a scene. And even though again, everything was sort of patched together, he was able to to do this for a long period of time. I mean, he started in the twenties and didn't end until like the like the beginning of nineteen fifty and everything. So he was a, really an amazing uh, filmmaker. Actually, it's even hard to find pictures of him. But you know, in the few descriptions that I have read of him, he was quite uh, an imposing and impressive physical presence. I, I remember yes. uh, reading a few quotations in that Bogo. Book I mentioned earlier uh, about how he would kind of swoop into town uh, with this, you know, miraculous looking coat and look like a god kind of descending from on heaven and, and just woo people. I mean, he's a novelist. Uh, he was an entrepreneur. He was someone who I think fits quite well within our contemporary understandings of auteurs. He kind of did every single mm-hmm. uh, kind of creative uh, aspect of, of the filmmaking process and turning his original works uh, and also adapting other works to the screen. I remember one of the uh, um, really the only one of the first Oscar Micheaux movies. I saw was within our gates, which is played at uh, um, at the Whitney Humanity Center a couple of years ago with a live piano accompaniment. And that movie, in and of itself, has a, a pretty uh, wonderful story of being recovered in some Spanish archive uh, in the 1970s after being lost for decades. But so you were saying that Michaud um, and also this uh, collection of books about African American uh, cinema uh, helped uh, kind of spur and goad this budding interest in. Uh, the um, into the topic, but how how did that interest coalesce into these two courses that you taught in the early nineties uh, here in New Haven? Well, I had been doing uh, work with the uh, with the Yale's um, Afro American Cultural Center. Um, usually during Black History Month, they wanted to do a, a series of films. So for two or three years, I you know worked with the different directors. I worked with Kim Goff Cruz and later with Melvin Wade. Um, to do you know to do those films, and then we would always have discussions, you know, with uh, you know the people that came afterwards. And it was Melvin who had suggested. He goes, well, you know, Yale has a, um, a seminar series, you know, for courses that aren't normally taught at Yale, 
and you should consider doing that. You know, you should start you know, everything you've amassed. You should, you know, start spreading that to, to other people. You know, and and I thought that would be you know interesting, especially you know the first one, which you know dealt with uh, you know what were called the race films and how they came to being, which is uh, mainly through um, um, D.W. Griffith's uh, Birth of a Nation. Um, a lot of a lot of it became you know came from a response to that because there were so many people that um, were you know upset you know by that movie you know because basically it was about about the the clan and, it, and it's uh, you know considered the uh, you know the beginning of the modern filmmaking process you know um, it's been called lightning in a bottle and you know a bunch of other things but the NAACP and a lot of other people you know tried to do boycotts all through the country for that particular movie. Um, and then there was a gentleman named uh, Emmett Scott um, who did another movie that was called Birth of a Birth of a Race and everything, which was sort of the rebuttal to that. And even though it didn't do well and and got kind of screwed over through you know distribution rights and things, um, got people like Oscar Michelle and Spencer Williams and, and other people to uh, to decide. Well, you know, we can we can do our own movies and 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 have our own um, our own voices and and be shown in, in a better light than we are in like, in, you know, that particular movie or some other movies that uh, basically were extensions of, of vaudeville with, uh, with white people doing blackface. So I, I think that The Birth of a Nation is one of those movies when we think about the history of African-American cinema that maybe along with something like uh, Gone with the Wind or uh, In the Heat of the Night or uh, I'm sure a number of other movies come to mind, but are kind of there after this movie, nothing is quite the same as they were before. Um, in terms of how African-Americans are represented on screen. And you're right in that The Birth of a Nation, this 1915 landmark movie by D.W. Griffith, uh, was, uh, as I think, praised by President Woodrow Wilson. It was, uh, you know, I remember Ava DuVernay in her documentary 13th from a few years ago spent a fair amount of time on how Birth of a Nation helped inspire uh, the rejuvenation of the Ku Klux Klan, presenting mm-hmm. this romantic reimagination of these white heroes riding on horseback and protecting Reconstruction Era South from these uh, nefarious and sexually crazed black villains. And uh, is that, um, you, you mentioned the term race film early on, and from what I understand, that was uh, kind of central to the um, the purview of the first cars the first that you cars. taught. Um, could you unpack that term a little bit more for, for me in the audience? Um, you said that it, it grew up as a kind of response to these uh, kind of most nefarious of depictions of African-Americans on screen, but um, what were some uh, examples of uh, influential race films or uh, race films that you taught in these courses that um, that put forward different ways uh, or maybe maybe tired ways of representing African Americans in American movies. Well, there were some that uh, had a, um, a religious slant to them, um, and that was something that uh, that that a lot of the companies liked to do. Um, one was um, this gentleman named Spencer Williams, who later went on to. Uh, to be in the TV version of Amos and Andy. And he was very religious, and he did a movie um, with the uh, unusual title of Dirty Gertie from Harlem. Um, and actually, it was based on a, on a W. Somerset Maugham um, uh, book or, or, or short, short story um, called Sadie Thompson, which actually was also made into a, a movie with Rita Hayworth. Mm. And it was about a, a, you know, this sort of you know, wayward, loose woman um, in a in a uh, in a little island, um, and her relationship with uh, with the sailors and the other you know groups of people that are on the island, and in the Rita Hayworth version of it and everything, um, she basically has a heart of gold, and the minister who kind of comes in to kind of destroy her is just like this really evil person, um, but in the um, Spencer Williams version of it. Uh, the minister actually is a good person and everything, and he actually helps convert her to, you know, to being a better person. Um, it was also kind of interesting, too, because it, it didn't have to worry about the, uh, you know, the Hollywood code for movies and things. So it got to be a little, um, a little more sexually explicit than, you know, a lot of things, you know, were at that particular time. Um, but, uh, you know, that was interesting. But uh, they were, there were also a lot of films that dealt with... Um, uh, like Miracle in Harlem that dealt with um, building up the community, um, having people, uh, you know, be lawyers and doctors and, you know, and, you know, having them, you know, be in more positive light than they would be, you know, being able to um, 
not be afraid of ghosts and all these other things that you would get in a lot of Hollywood movies. Now, are these, um, maybe tell me a bit about how these uh, movies went over, at least in this, this first class that maybe focused on, on the history of, of race films, uh, how they played out uh, with your students in, in 1991 and how they looked to you uh, then. Did, do these movies, I know that, again, Bo, referencing Bogle, he, he mentions a lot of frustrations among his peers thinking about uh, African-American actors uh, kind of compromising with the studio system to make these uh, degrading, whether positive or negative, um, movies uh, in in the first half of the 20th century where, you know, with the kind of revolution of... Uh, the kind of black exploitation style of cinema in the early seventies and the kind of independent authoritative African-American representations on screen that is very difficult to look back at these roles. Um, however, uh, positive a person may be represented because of how, um, I don't know, again, this, you know, racial stereotypes that have been pervasive in America well before the history of cinema, the, um, accommodating and calm and content, uh, um, representation of African Americans in in American life, but uh, how did how did these movies look to you in ninety one, and how how did your students respond to them? Actually, they responded uh, pretty positively uh, to them um, because it was interesting for them to to be able to to see things back from like the like the twenties or the thirties or the forties with uh, you know actors that uh, you know some of them had uh, you know so that you could tell you know what kind of you know uh, character they were playing would have like nicknames like the the CPMA West or the colored Cagney or or the colored Clark Gable. Um, there's uh, one guy uh, Herbert Jeffrey. Who oh right, would, you you brought in a few yeah. uh, VHS with you. So yeah, yeah as, as you hold it up to the camera for anyone watching on Facebook Live, uh, tell tell us about what what you're what you're holding up. Okay, this is um, Herbert Jeffrey. He was like the uh, in all the sort of uh, westerns that they did, um, which almost always had to do with some some uh, point. You know, he went to Harlem in these. And they were always funny because it, it was like Harlem was like uh, a horse ride and a car ride from from the west to to, to uh, New York. Um, but uh, you know he got to be you know sort of he was like a like a Roy Rogers kind of character. Um, you know he always got to sing. You know he got into you know the fights and you know he was always the good sharpshooter and you know and had the Palomino horse and had the uh, you know the funny sidekick and stuff and you know would get the girls. And everything, but uh, you know, he did a number, you know, a number of these. But uh, you know, a lot of the characters, you know, always, uh, you know, were people that uh, were sort of glamorous, you know, in what they did, you know, or they were, or they were tough and everything. They, they were, you know, a lot of them were fair-minded in what they did, but they were always looking to uh, um, uplift the race. Hmm. Did you um, so? And I, I promise that I won't reference Bogle every other <laughs> sentence in this. In, but I was quite struck by again the you know explicit thesis of his book being that his view of African American cinema is one of um, talented, introspective, uh, really interesting artists overcoming stock stereotypical roles mm-hmm. uh, and finding artistry amongst uh, amidst the shtick. Um, as you uh, think back to the course that you put together in '91, and then maybe we can start talking about the one that you taught in 93 as well, uh, maybe a, a companion of sorts. Um, do you have a similar uh, feeling about looking back in these early 20th century representations of African-Americans on screen as great actors or interesting actors kind of individuating amidst uh, the, the schlocky roles given to them? Um, yeah, I would uh, agree with that, um, especially if you get, you know, somebody like uh, Paul Robeson, you know, who is a major figure, you know, uh, in the theater and, and, and uh, in politics. Politi- and, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, who got to do roles like the Emperor Jones or, or um, uh, Sanders of the River or, you know, some of the other things that, that he did, you know, but he always, you know, he always brought um, anything that he played up to his level. You know, it was never like, you know, I'm not just going to, you know, play this and, you know, it's, it's like a, a hoot or anything and everything. It's always like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it, you know, whatever this is, it's going to be um, at a higher level. It's going to be, you know, when I can bring my best to it. Is there, uh, just for the sake of, of recommending movies to listeners who, that they may not already know of, um, I'm sure that, well, you know, I'm not so sure, actually. Paul Robeson <laughs> is one of those kind of titans of the first century and merely mid, or the first half of the 20th century and mid-century 
America, who has really, I think, been forgotten by popular culture in the subsequent years. Uh, I think that his you know, long association with the Soviet Union was certainly used uh, as a way to attack him by, by many of his American opponents. But talk about someone who was you know, incredibly uh, talented uh, scholar and actor and athlete and then political activist. Um, are there Paul Robeson movies? You mentioned The Emperor Jones. Are there particular roles or screen appearances that you would direct someone to who uh, has n- has maybe heard the name Paul Robeson but hasn't seen him uh, perform before? Well, I would definitely recommend Emperor Jones. Um, also, Sanders of the River, too, and everything where he plays an African chieftain, I think, are, are two of the ones that I can think of right off the top of my head. Great. And tell me, um, well, first you're listening to WNHH uh, on uh, this show is Deep Focus, a conversation about movies and New Haven, and I'm talking with Steve Fortes about uh, two courses he taught in the early uh, 1990s about kind of a historical retrospective of African-American cinema. Um, We've spoken a bit about the uh, 91 course on race cinema, or on race films, but I know that you also taught one in in 1993. Could you tell us a bit about uh, how how this course was similar to or or different to the one in 91, and and what what movies, maybe give a few examples of movies that you touched on uh, in that 93 seminar? It uh, started out with most of uh, what I did in 91, um, but um, I tried to, to do, uh, as the movies went on, you know, during the course of the years, um, I had um, uh, a, a lot more uh, to, uh, that I was able to, uh, a lot more movies that I was able to, to, to obtain at that particular point. Um, I wanted to, to do some things on, on movies that um, I figured were movies that uh, were either lost movies or movies that uh, people might not have known as well. Uh, one of them was um, a movie called Nothing But a Man, um, which starred uh, Ivan Dixon and Abby Lincoln. And I was lucky that uh, through the Afro-American Cultural Center, um, we were able to get Michael Romer, who was the director of that movie, who used to teach every other semester at Yale we were able to get him to come in to talk to the class about, you know, about that particular movie. And, you know, and it was around that time it was, it was uh, one of the anniversary years and they were, had just redone the movie as uh, you know, on, on a video cassette. And tell me a bit about, I, that was another movie that I saw at the Winnie Humanity Center a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. And I believe Romer uh, helped present, but um, yeah. it's from 1964, right. It's d- directed by a, a white director, white director. Um, mm-hmm. but a, a really exclusively African-American story and mm-hmm. characters. Um, what, what is it that about, what about nothing but a man, uh, jumped out at you and, and jumps out at you now as worthy of including in a, you know, retrospective on such a, uh, incredibly expansive, um, subject as the history of African-American cinema? Well, it was an interesting story about, um, just sort of an everyday man and it's sort of like, um, an, an odyssey that he takes. Um, you know, he's, He's working in one particular place, and he has a woman, Abby Lincoln, that you know he, he uh, becomes involved with. Um, and uh, his, the situation with her sort of goes downhill, and, and, and you know he's sort of proud in, in what he in what he's doing, and um, thinks that he's not being treated fairly, and he sort of drops everything and kind of goes on this odyssey that goes back to in search of his father, and uh, he has a, a child, you know, by another woman that he's had nothing to do with. And it's it's just sort of interesting watching him go through this odyssey back to his roots and claiming the things that he's denied in the past and being able to bring them forward so that he can come back to Abby Lincoln, you know, uh, towards the end of the movie. And it's just a really nice, um, um, simple movie, you know, but, it, you know, it has, it has the, you know, the romance uh, uh, portion to it, you know, but it also has... Uh, you know, things that people were, were dealing with and everything. And it had a lot of really good actors in it besides them. Julius Harris was another one who's been in a, in, a, in a lot of movies. He became popular again in the 70s. He did a lot of the black exploitation movies. Um, I Well, I, I definitely wanted <clears throat> to get to how the movies of the 70s figured in uh, to mm-hmm. these courses, but I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, mention and spend a second talking about Sidney Poitier as maybe the... Um, definitely the most iconic um, of really of actors, uh, not only African-American actors in uh, mid-century Hollywood cinema. Um, I think he uh, is a, a, a polarizing figure, um, at least in terms of representing the, uh, the perfect black man, the one who is equal by being superior to everyone mm-hmm. uh, on screen uh, in, in movies. Um, of course, like in the heat of the night, I uh, guess who's coming to dinner, uh, 
uh, he kind of established this archetype of, or at least embodied this archetype of someone who uh, was just the epitome of of decency um, and kind of never losing his cool, no matter how much, uh, uh, despite one one infamous slap in in Heat of the Night. <laughs> but I wonder how um, how you covered Sidney Poitier in these courses, and also what you think about his legacy as again one of the most kind of representative figures of this history of African American cinema. Yeah, I, I, there are a lot of people that that say that uh, you know they wouldn't be able to have done what they did if it hadn't been for him. You know, and it, and for a long time, you know, it was like basically it was him. He he was you know the only one that anyone ever saw, and he was he was he was a good actor. Um, you, you could always uh, you know tell that he had uh, had you know spark and 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 that he um, you know he would be a, a just person. Um, you know, sometimes it kind of graded that he was as good as he was, you know, in a lot of things. I know a lot of people that are, uh, um, annoyed with Lilies of the Field, even though he won an Academy Award for that, or, or the Defiant Ones, you know, when he kind of saved Tony Curtis at the end of the movie when he could have gotten away. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you know, was the one, you know, even, even Spencer Tracy in that, you know, movie, you know, said like, you know, well, no wonder he doesn't say much about himself. Who wouldn't believe him? <laughs> You know, because he was such a, you know, <laughs> you know, an, an amazing person, you know, and, and, and just, you know, so almost angelical, you know, in what he was doing. Um, but, uh, I, you know, he was, always was somebody that, uh, you know, you could always, you know, look up to. Um, and I, I think probably with In the Heat of the Night is, is the, you know, is the movie that, uh, you know, people started to see him for more, especially about that slap that you were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, sort of. Uh, this has been called a slap that's been heard around the world. <laughs> right. In which, for people who haven't seen the movie, mm-hmm. uh, uh, he is called to a kind of remote uh, rural southern town as a, I believe he's a police officer or an mm-hmm. investigator from Philadelphia, but he faces nothing but, um, you know, racial intimidation and abuse and discrimination, uh, including by his partners, played by uh, Rod Steiger. And after, you know, one uh, insult too many, he um, he slaps uh, Rod Steiger across the face, which for audiences in 1967 um, especially for white audiences, 1967 must have been quite a, sh- a shock to yeah. see. Uh, Actually, it was uh, um, sort of the town patriarch who he slaps. Oh, not not his. Not, yeah, because they they had they, uh, he had sort of considered him uh, suspect for for murder that had happened in the town, mm-hmm. and basically sort of tells him that, and and the patriarch slaps him, and he slaps him back, <laughs> and the, the patriarch is just you know he's dumbfounded and he looks at Rod Steiger who's the chief of police and he goes did, did you see that and he goes yeah I saw it and he goes well what are you going to do and he goes I, I don't know <laughs> but <laughs> but it, you know it sort of became like um, you know a, like a, a, a big thing especially for like black audiences to see him react that way mm-hmm. um, was that an important moment for you in your uh, watching of movies and oh, your love of movies do you do you remember seeing oh, that oh yes I definitely re- yes definitely remember seeing that um, and and I liked it because, you know, after that, the conversation he has with Rod Starger, he's sort of talking about how he can bring this fat cat down off, off the hill. And Rod Starger goes, oh, you're just like the rest of us, aren't you? You know, and, and it's like because he, he's pinpointed on, like, you know, this is the guy that did it, you know, and it's, you know, all the things that he rep- represents about racism and, and, you know, hierarchy in the town, I'm going to bring him down, even though it eventually turns out he's not, he's not the guy. You know, you get to see, you know, some some really kind of human elements of, of Sidney Poitier in that movie. Um, I sort of really enjoyed um, that one. I mean, Rod Steiger won the Academy Award for, for Best Actor for that one and everything. But, but I thought that Sidney Poitier in that role was uh, particularly good and everything. And, you know, I thought that he, he was also would have been someone who would, would have been deserving of, of that. Um, as as always with these conversations, they they fly by so quickly that there's never enough time to talk about everything. But I do want to make sure to hit on at least two more topics before we close, and that's um, movies of the 1970s, how they factored into uh, movies like Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song, mm-hmm. uh, Shaft, even Gondra and Hess. Maybe a bit unfair to group that into black exploitation, but certainly uh, a, a fascinating art house kind of horror mixture by mm-hmm. by Bill Gunn. Um, how those uh, factored into the classes you taught, and then also maybe as you're thinking about how those movies of the '70s worked, take me take me up to the present. I mean, you taught these courses 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, how how would these courses be different today? What what would you make sure to include in them from the past 25 years? And I don't know. Do you think the thesis would be different from uh, from about these courses? Uh, if you were teaching them in 2018, but 70s first. 70s first, okay. 
Well, the seventies, you know, you know, obviously that was that was the you know the next sort of next boom, really big boom, um, you know, where they had uh, basically what were called the black exploitation movies, um, even though they they weren't all that. Um, um, sort of starting out, you know, with Sweetback, which was you know definitely a little a little bit different than um, uh, than a lot of the other ones that came out because it had a lot of political content to it. Um, but uh, even Melvin Van Peebles, who wrote it and directed it. Um, talks about his, um, you know, the person he thought about when he was doing this was Oscar Micheaux because that's how he, you know, got his, you know, did his funding for this. You know, he, you know, he did it, you know, piece by piece, little by little. Um, luckily for him, he ended up, um, when he, when he started to run out of money, he was able to go to, um, a lot of black people that, uh, that were successful. He was able to go to Bill Cosby and Bill Russell and, um, a lot of other people that, that helped him, you know, end up getting, you know, some of the funding for the movie that he wanted to do. Um, it, it, it was interesting because he, um, you know, he knew he wanted to have like a lot of political content in the movie and he wasn't quite sure that, uh, the people that were backing him, um, would, uh, let him do what he wanted to do. So basically he, he kind of said like, well, I'm kind of just kind of making a sex movie. And even though there's a lot of sex in it, you know, that's only a you know a part of it because you know Sweetback is a is a um, um, a, a sex performer, you know, in that. But the, you know, there's a, you know it, there ends up being a lot of political content in that. Um, when he released it, uh, the uh, uh, ratings board, you know, wasn't sure what they you know what they wanted to do with that, and they said, well, you know, this is really disturbing. Um, and he goes, well, you're probably going to have to get this an X rating and everything. And he was saying, well, I'd rather just kind of go with no rating. But if you're going to give it the X rating, and then, and a lot of the ads wherever he was able to get them, he said, you know, rated X by an all white jury. You know, it was kind of one of the things. Um, and what got the movie really going was um, uh, there were a number of uh, Black Panthers that had seen it mm. and mentioned it to other people, and they got groups of Black Panthers and other political groups to go and see the movie, and that's kind of what gave it the, the big push mm. where it became really popular. Um, and other people decided, okay, well, we got to, you know, we kind of got to jump in on this, you know, and we got other things like, um, um, well, Shaft, obviously, you know, which is uh, Gordon Parks' movie, um, which was... Uh, a lot of it was fun, um, you know. It was a, it, um, you know a detective story, you know, but it was something that uh, you know people could always relate to. But uh, the character Shaft was was also you know he was he was you know kind of a smart guy. You know, he used a lot of uh, a lot of things that people that you know people would assume would be sort of uh, weaknesses of the black race to kind of uh, get things done, especially in the climax of the movie where he got all of the black militants to act like people in the uh, uh, the hotel workers so he could rescue the girl, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. They had the Isaac Hayes music, you know, which was, you know, really, really, you know, got everybody going. Um, and now in, in the, I'm, I'm just going to give mm-hmm. you a, a minute more, I'm afraid, but okay. <laughs> not, to, not to capture, uh, not to cover 25 years in one minute, but uh, just maybe list a, a few movies from the past 25 years that you would definitely include uh, in, in a course in 2018 and maybe, uh, you know, a thought or two on, on how, it would be different teaching this uh, today versus in 1993. Okay. Well, I think I, a lot of it would be the same. I'd have to start with the, you know, the same things that I did before. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some documentaries that I, that I might uh, want to do. Um, Spike Lee has done a couple of really good documentaries, um, you know, when the levee broke and, you know, four little girls. Um, Anna DuVernay, who you mentioned, who did 13, you know, which would be interesting. There's uh, actually there's one on, on baseball. That was kind of interesting. It's called "Only the Ball Was White," which was about the Negro Leagues, which would be interesting. Um, one particular filmmaker that I like is uh, Casey Lemons, mm. who did uh, "Eve's Bayou," and there's another movie that she did that a lot of people probably haven't seen. It's called "The Caveman's Valentine," mm. that she did with uh, Samuel L. Jackson, which is pretty good. Um, Devil in the Blue Dress with uh, Denzel Washington, which uh, had a black director, Carl Franklin, and, and uh, was written by uh, Walter Mosley based on his, uh, his detective character, um, Easy Rollins. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those would be ones that I'd want to do. I, I probably would, uh, there's a lot more stuff that you can get on, like, like Netflix and other things now. Um, Spike Lee has a new version of uh, She's Got to Have It that's a 10-part series that he did, which is really good. Um, he has a lot of um, 
women writers and and uh, producers on that particular show and everything, and it really goes deep into uh, you know um, a, a lot of women's issues. And do you think the premise of the course would be different in any way? Would, would uh, is what you've seen develop in the world of African American cinema over the past quarter century change your fundamental uh, perspective on you know now over a century of uh, black people being represented on screen in America? And it doesn't have to be yes. Just curious. I think it would be pretty much the same. Um, you know, there are some things that, uh, um, you know, that, uh, you know, I might want to talk to people about or, or you know, have questions about. Um, I have a friend who um, um, uh, writes for different newspapers and, uh, and uh, uh, does some things on TV and radio. And, you know, we've talked about different films and, you know, and we wonder, like, who, who is this film for? Hmm. Is it for us? <laughs> or, you know, is it? you know, predominantly for African-American people is, or, you know, is it for white audiences, you know, and, and do we really need this, you know, or, or you know, should we stick with uh, stuff like uh, uh, the movie that they did a little while ago about Thurgood Marshall uh, or movies like uh, Catherine Bigelow's uh, Detroit, you know, you know, what, what kinds of movies, you know, should we, you know, should we, we be looking for? I, I think that is a fascinating question, hopefully a provocative one to um, to launch into a, another conversation because, Steve, unfortunately we're out of time in this first mm-hmm. segment, but um, thank you so much for, for coming on, and I really hope that uh, we have you back on to uh, maybe go into a bit more depth on an individual movie or two and, and kind of break down what, what you see in it, how you respond to it, and, and how you think it stands up today. Um, but Steve Fortes, uh, a local film critic and lecturer, uh, sharing some thoughts on uh, two seminars he taught in the early 90s about African-American film. Thank you so much for coming on, Steve. Okay, thank you. All right, coming up next, a conversation about Steven Spielberg's uh, The Post. But first, let's hear a little bit from uh, Ellison Jackson's song, Man from Lowell. Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I am joined for the first time in 2018 by my regular movie reviewing buddy, Alan Appel. Hi, Tom. Alan, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Always a pleasure to be here. I hope that uh, many movies uh, passed across your eyeballs in the past couple weeks. I don't know if you've spent much time in in the theaters in the end of December, early January, or if you've taken a break from... Well, actually, the post was a was a movie that uh, my wife turned to me and said, well, "We have to see this movie together," which is an extremely unusual occurrence. So we did it. 
at Madison Art Cinemas, right? A shout out to Arnold Gorlick for seemingly doing so well uh, with uh, with this movie at his art house theater in Madison. But all right, let's. Uh, so I, I, as I was saying, I don't have an elaborate intro plan for the post. This is Steven Spielberg's movie about uh, the debate within the Washington Post's editorial and publishing ranks in 1971 about uh, whether to publish. Uh, excerpts and stories based on Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, these reams of uh, documents that were top secret and told the kind of untold history of America's involvement in Vietnam from the 1940s to 1970s, and in particular hit upon the incredible uh, deceit and cynicism that the American executive branch uh, was using to uh, extend the war uh, for, for decades and decades and thousands of thousands upon uh, lives American and Vietnamese lost. Um, this movie is, uh, you know, it bears a very immediate comparison to all the president's men in being about the Washington Post and early 1970s scandal uh, at the White House. Um, and I think that that is a very, very difficult movie to be compared to, um, particularly when you are in making more of a hagiography, uh, a, a love letter to uh, maybe a self-congratulatory patting on the back of how great uh, free, uh, you know, institutions are. Uh, especially at a time of incipient uh, totalitarianism that we seem to be going into right now. So I think that um, it's difficult to hold this up to all the president's men, but I don't know if that's a jumping off point for you, whether that uh, earlier Woodward and Bernstein, Redford and uh, um, Dustin Hoffman movie is a, a touchstone for you and how journalism movies should be done. Mm. Um, or whether you just, you know, tell me about what you thought of the post. Well, that's a good, that's a good place to start. Actually, on the way over here, I was trying to remind myself who, who was the director of all the president's men. Uh, Pakula, Alan Pakula, I think was his was name. Was it Pakula? Okay, so I know. I, I, I mean, it's 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 difficult, but really, it is it is completely fair. It's a, it, it really is a story about journalism, and uh, uh, and one is a better movie, and one is to use your word, a kind of hey geography of uh, the First Amendment and the and the role of the of the reporter. Uh, a role that you are going to be stepping into even even more big time, I gather. Uh, congratulations in the month or two ahead. I don't know if you've told your listeners and whether whether that will have any impact on your deep focus. But in any event, um, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, you know the movie is is. Uh, uh, so self-congratulatory was the first word that came to mind well, from watching this. I mean, this stars Tom Hanks as Ben Bradley, Meryl Streep as the publisher of the Washington Post, uh, constantly bathed in the brightest of bright white lights, always shot from, you know, the lowest of angles to demonstrate the, like, enormity of these great personages. It just kind of, it screamed at me, you know, history is determined by, you know, larger-than-life good people and larger-than-life bad people, and we just have to hope sometimes that the larger-than-life good people defeat the larger-than-life well, bad that's, people. Well, that's history according to Steven Spielberg. That's the brief against Steven Spielberg, that he simplifies things, that it's, it's, uh, it's good guys against bad guys. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, that is often the case, whereas, um, you know, the, uh, uh, in All the President's Men, it's... Um, it's everybody is complicated and everybody is slogging through the mud and everybody is making 52 phone calls and the 53rd one um, for, from the reporter's point of view works and everybody on the other side um, is shutting the door against the reporters, but not because they're evil, uh, but it's because they have very good reasons. They're pregnant. They're worried about their future. They're worried about their own lives. So, uh, you know, in, in just in raw terms of complexity of narrative, there's just no question, as somebody wrote, I think it was um, one of the reviewers, maybe it was no, Manolo Dargas in the, in the Times was, was full of great praise for Spielberg. And I, I love Steven Spielberg's movies, but somebody else did say uh, Spielberg's movie is a good, solid movie, but All the President's Men is a great movie. Can you pull the mic a, a little bit more centered to you? Um, I, th I think that that is an appropriate appraisal. You know, one thing that... Uh, so I, I'm not quite sure how my own prejudices as a reporter as being much more sympathetic to the kind of gritty, um, you know, boots on the ground, uh, very unglamorous look at what it takes to be a journalist in All the President's Men and also in Tom McCarthy's Spotlight, a pretty uh, remarkable movie about uh, the Spotlight reporters for the Boston Globe uncovering, you know, the... Uh, it's it's a real you know these are uh, 
counterculture, kind of anti-authoritarian movies, uh, uh, All the President's Men and Spotlight, and showing, uh, you know, hardworking little guys kind of toppling these almost insurmountable uh, institutions that are abusing their power. Here, you know, they, maybe there is, maybe we are in a time when we need something like uh, the post from Steven Spielberg, where we need just this big, simple, incredibly clear. I mean, the clarity of the narrative is just remarkable. I, I love how easy it is to understand from the very start. The post is struggling financially. The post is struggling in terms of its reputation. And here comes an opportunity to uh, potentially save both of those or throw the post, you know, into uh, a deathly tailspin. Uh, I, I, is that what we need right now? When- well, uh, you know, what you're suggesting is is uh, the next Spielberg movie, which would be uh, Tom Hanks as Robert Mueller. Uh, you know, because his movie does suggest that what we need is, uh, this is, a, you know, and, and, you know, we do need heroes. And, uh, I, I mean, I'm not the only one who sits in front of um, Rachel Maddow and MSNBC and and waits for Mueller to emerge, like, on a white horse and really, uh, you know, save the day. So, and that's what Spielberg's, that's what the feel of that movie is like, the kind of... Um, heroic, um, you know, uh, uh, framing of each scene that you talked about. And, you know, it, but it's odd because um, I, I don't know if he's uh, bending the arc of history. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how much the, 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 the issue of the Washington Post's um, uh, uh, financial future uh, dovetails exactly with the, with the, the, with the suit uh, um and, and of course, we haven't mentioned the fact, speaking of bending the art of history for the sake of uh, grand drama, um, you know, the real hero of the Pentagon Papers was not the Washington Post, it was the New York Times. And they have cameo roles and, you know, nice sequences with uh, the guy who's playing uh, a Rosenthal or... Oh, Michael Stuhlbarg. Michael Stuhlbarg, oh, yeah. Yes. But, you know, there were New York Times reporters that, you know, that that that, that are mentioned, that, like Neil Sheehan, whom... Who, whom um, you know, Hanks is after and other people. I mean, you know, this and of course, I mean, the true hero of the Pentagon Papers is Daniel Ellsberg and the the courage and uh, audacity of taking these papers from the Rand Corporation and bringing them to The New York Times. And you know, he gets a little bit of a role in this movie. But again, this is much more about uh, the uh, kind of rivalry between the Post and the Times that spurs the Post to act a bit more recklessly, right, right. Um, but uh, also about the decisions made at the, you know, these are very wealthy, uh, um, prominent, beautiful people making important decisions as opposed to Ellsberg unceremoniously. Right. And you have to think that what's, what, what Spielberg's concept was, was he got these two heavyweights, uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. And uh, the movie has to be about has to be about them. And in fact, one of the one of the odd pleasures for me of this movie, uh, you know, because, you know, you're in its spell. Spielberg is a good is a good filmmaker. And as you point out, there's maximum clarity. Nobody lingers to, to make you think too much about stuff. By the way, which is one of the reasons I love a lot of the long, slow slogging sequences in getting to know the platoon in um, Saving Private Ryan, because it's not this. He has patience with people's um, evolving situations. But here it's bam, bam, bam. And a lot of the heavyweight back and forth is watching, uh, the pleasures for me is watching Streep and uh, and uh, Tom Hanks kind of feel each other out in scene after scene after scene. Like, like who's going to, uh, who's going to, like have a slower uh, uh, response time to the other person's lines. You know, who could hold out longer uh, without making a facial gesture? You know, and Meryl Streep, uh, you know, she she wins on points because she's she's really quite wonderful in, um, I guess, you know, tracing um, uh, Catherine Graham's evolution. Lots of interesting scenes where she walks into a room full of men who are dominating her life. And in many ways, the, the, you know, that's also one of the pleasures of the movie to see how she navigates all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I, we're certainly rooting for her. And I think the movie uh, is, you know, uh, nominally relevant as a celebration of the First Amendment, but also even more relevant to the current political moment in terms of the struggles that it shows uh, Catherine Graham's character facing in exactly what you just described, uh, the the intensely hyper-masculine industries of newspapers, politics, and banking. Uh, those seem to be the three that she is thrust into as the only woman in a room full of white men and very, uh, you know... Uh, Un- unremarkable suit or very very right. imposing uh, black dark suits um, who are constantly talking over her right who are constantly intimidating her talking behind her back in front of her face um, probably my, my favorite uh, adversarial relationship in the movie is not necessarily 
uh, between Ben Bradley and the New York Times or between Bradley and Catherine Graham, but between Graham and uh, Robert McNamara, played by Bruce Greenwood. The, yeah, um, the man who's wonderfully who, cast. Who is, is just perfect and really looks remarkably like Robert McNamara. He does. But I, I do love the way that you know they are personal friends. They're part of the same social circle. Uh, and she has to learn to... Um, you know, overcome the discomfort of of confronting a uh, um a friend for the sake of preserving the editorial integrity of of her newspaper. Um, were there were there mo and there maybe there's one or two other scene. Well, we're, we're wrapping up. The one other scene I want to highlight is working really well. Uh, is when uh when Streep leaves the Supreme Court. Uh, after uh, the Supreme Court has just heard the New York Times and Washington Post's case for publishing the Pentagon Papers. And instead of being interviewed by all of these newspaper men, she walks down the side of the stairs and walks into this, you know, this group of admiring, silent young women who yeah, are looking up they, to her. Where'd they come from? Which, like, I, I don't know where they came from. They came from some Catholic school around the corner that he finding, brought in for, uh, to look good. In terms I mean, of finding the perfect kind of visual representation of what, you know, the apotheosis of this street character yeah, but, um, but of course that really wasn't what the movie was about, and I'm sure that wasn't what Catherine Graham's experience was at were all. Were you not moved, That's, though? No, I wasn't. I thought it's Steven, it's Steven Spielberg being rabbinical and sermonizing. And there's also like a there's also a piece that really stands out where Hanks has to... Uh, this is going to be your last comment, I'm afraid, so make it a good one. He, yeah, he, he, <laughs> he gets up on his hind legs and talks about the First Amendment, which is totally unnecessary because Fair. that's what the movie is all about. And, you know... Uh, you know Spielberg does need a little bit of an editor on his shoulder, but it's a, he really knows how to make movies, and it's it's a pleasure, and people should see it. And um, and as I say, hope that he'll be thinking about um, casting uh, Redford as Muller in the future. Very, actually, very loud. I'm going to give you 15 seconds. I remember one of the first movies we spoke about, maybe in the very first one, was Best of Enemies, the documentary about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. And you, yes. you spoke about your experience in Grant Park in 1968 at the, yes. at the D- Democratic National Convention. Do you remember uh, where you were and what you were doing when the Pentagon Papers were first published in 71? Well, I was trying I was trying to, uh, to touch base with that, and I don't have uh, a lot of visual recollection but i certainly remember uh i, I certainly remember the uh the emotion and uh, and it and the and the the real hero as you mentioned it, you know as we experience it is ellsberg and of course he plays such a, a minor role and we should point out that part of his minor role is the in the opening scenes of the movie are you know is is the is the kind of uh uh dramatic hell of a battle in vietnam in which he sort of is on the margins as an analyst but that's, you know, uh, Spielberg is quoting the opening of Schindler's List um, in a good way, I think. But but um, uh, yeah, no, I, it, it's for anybody who's a child of the 60s, uh, it, it will put them in touch with those memories better than mine. It's great to have you back on the show. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you so much. You can find a complete archive of over two years of conversations about movies in New Haven at deepfocusradio.com.